0: Welcome to the 300th of The COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical sociologist Ki-Hung Kim to talk about the many different aspects of COVID in South Korea. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Today is a special COVID Calls broadcast being held at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. You hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, June 29th, 2021, there are 3,928,760 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. South Korea is reporting 2015 deaths from COVID-19. Taiwan reports 549. China is reporting 4,636 deaths from COVID-19. In Russia, 133,893 deaths. And Japan is now reporting 14,622 deaths. Excuse me, Japan is reporting 14,621 deaths COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline is Richard K. Kim, pioneering Korean American prosecutor dies at 76. This was written by Sam Roberts and was published in the New York Times, April 22nd, 2021. Richard Kim immigrated from South Korea to the United States in 1970 earned a master's degree in business administration from Columbia University and became a certified public accountant. But he always wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and practice law. After working as an accountant during the day and attending Fordham Law School at night for seven years, he was admitted to the bar in 1984 and a year later was sworn in as a Queen's assistant district attorney among the first Asian American prosecutors in the United States. Gary the founder and executive director of the Korean Prosecutors Association in Los Angeles, said his organization had no record of who was the very first. A Chinese-American, Randall T. Ng, served as an assistant prosecutor in Queens after graduating from law school in 1972. Hugh H. Mo, who was born in Shanghai, was named in Manhattan in 1976, but there seems to be little doubt that Mr. Kim was in the vanguard. In January this year, he entered a hospital in Manhattan where he and his wife lived because his oxygen level was low. He never left. On April 3rd, he died of complications of COVID-19, his daughter Jane Kim said. He was 76. Richard Kwang Ho Kim was born in Seoul on November 14, 1944, the eldest son of Chong Soo Kim, a lawyer and author who was a chief prosecutor in Korea. His mother was Suk Hee Chung. His grandfather fled war-torn Seoul on foot temporarily when Mr. Kim was six. He graduated from Seoul National University and immigrated to the United States when he was 25. His parents followed after his father retired. Mr. Kim also earned a bachelor's degree at Columbia along with his MBA. While my father's true dream was to follow in his father's footsteps, Jane Kim said, my dad always said he started in accounting because language was not necessary to pursue a career that involved numbers. In 1976, he married Myung Yim, who later ran a women's clothing store and became an acupuncturist and a practitioner of herbal medicine. In addition to their daughter who became a civil rights lawyer and in 2010, the first Korean American elected official in San Francisco, when she won a seat on the city's board of supervisors, Mr. Kim is survived by his wife, a son, Philip, who's enrolled at the University of California, Los Angeles, Anderson School of Management, and a sister, Myung Cho. After serving under Queens District Attorney John J. Santucci, Mr. Kim went into private practice. According to court records, he was disbarred from 1995 to 2003 after a charge of conspiracy. He was sentenced to probation for that. In 1997, though, he became Chief Financial Officer and General Counsel of Kiss Products USA, a cosmetics company based in Port Washington, New York, that started in Flushing, Queens in 1989 and later went global. In a time when Asian-Americans are finally talking about stop Asian violence and the dearth of Asian-Americans in law enforcement, Ms. Kim said in an email, Richard understood the significance of serving the burgeoning Korean speaking community as assistant district attorney in New York City in 1985. I'm gonna to turn to my discussion with my guest ki Kim in just a moment. But I did want to take a moment to acknowledge that today marks the 300th episode of COVID Calls. When I started doing COVID Calls in March of 2020, it was a resource for daily discussion when information about how to react to the pandemic was literally evolving minute by minute. To me, at that time, the urgency of the daily calls was about getting disaster experts into conversation about their research and getting their expertise up into the news cycle. Over time, the project became a site of exploration, a place among many other places out there. COVID calls is certainly not the only of its kind, but it is one place where the widest variety of experts and survivors and witnesses could be in dialogue. I was lucky enough to be on the microphone with them. Every day, we've been trying to make sense of the pandemic and trying also to make sense of the tools that we have to create and sustain this knowledge, and when necessary, to make new tools. Over the past couple of months, especially as the pandemic has moved into its next act in North America, I've noticed a shift. Not that the search for knowing COVID is by any means at an end, but rather that people are turning to COVID calls as a way to take stock of what happened over the past 18 months. I should say at this point for guests who are experts in Brazil or in India or based outside of North America... Based here where I am, for example, in South Korea, this is not yet time for a post-action report or a eulogy for COVID. COVID is still a very serious daily threat to life. Still, there is, among many, a sense of passage, a movement out of one life and into another. For me, that means waiting for a vaccination, but the wait isn't endless. I see it on a calendar. I've heard people say that they are eager just to forget and to move on. We've even had one person chastise me on social media or wanting to linger with the memory of COVID too long, almost as if I've made a choice to reside in the darkness of it. I've thought a lot about that comment. And you know, maybe there is some truth there. Even when my own daily risk goes down through vaccination, not yet, but soon, I know I will still want to reside in the space of uncertainty and concern a while longer. This is a place of vigilance and of action. And I worry that I will, that society will move to closure and forgetting before the power of the uncertainty and fear provokes us to act, to take meaningful action. An act we must. We have so much to do for our health systems, our struggles for justice, our schools, our care workers. COVID shows the need for reform at every turn. So let's get vaccinated and live, but let's not let go of this feeling of, what else can I call it? Fear of deep concern until we've done what we can do for a safer future. Disaster memory is not apolitical. It's not uncritical. And it's not behind glass at a museum. Memory can and should provoke. And the future of COVID memory is literally being made right now. We are making it. The memory of COVID is already a battleground of competing explanations and ideologies. Not all of them in good faith, some of them very dangerous not a choice to remember or forget COVID. It's a choice among competing narratives, competing memories. I would say don't let anyone tell you it wasn't that bad or that those many months were all bad or wasted. It wasn't one thing or another. COVID was and is as diverse as life and society itself. COVID forced us to create new practices of work and sociability, even some new ways of living, some attention to the brokenness of the old ways, too. You might not want to give up on that knowledge so quickly. That's good and useful, but at the core, there's also a struggle to learn hard lessons from COVID-19. Let's work together to sustain the lessons based in the grim truth of unnecessary deaths, compassion for those still suffering, and a just recovery to come. Thanks for all who've participated with me through these 300 episodes to try to do that work. I also want to thank Shivani Patel, Bucky Stanton, Tiana Cume, and Eleanor Mays, the indispensable core members of the COVID Calls team. And I also want to let you know that in a few weeks time, the COVID Calls Research Portal will finally launch. Plus, we have more guest hosts coming in the weeks to come. Kim Fortune, Jacob Steer-Williams, and Kristin Urquiza will all take the mic. And I want to thank Felicia Henry, who has guest hosted three times already, including this morning. She did a fabulous job. And I hope you'll check out those episodes. Stay tuned. There will be more COVID calls to come. Okay, I want to introduce my guest today and and thank him for his patience as I was talking about COVID calls and the 300th episode. Let me introduce him. ki Hyung Kim is a professor at POSTECH, the Pohang University of Science and Technology in South Korea. He graduated from the sociology department at Sogong University and did his PhD in science studies in the science studies unit of the University of Edinburgh where he worked on the social studies of infectious diseases in particular, mad cow disease, BSE, Scrapie and VCJD. Professor Ki-Hung worked at the Wellcome Trust Center for the History of Medicine at University College London and moved on to do laboratory studies at the chemical engineering department, Imperial College London. He remains interested in the social aspects of animal and human infectious diseases like foot and mouth disease, MERS, and COVID-19. And I want to acknowledge his book, which was published with Rutledge in 2007, among his many other publications. That book is Social Construction of Disease from Scrapie to Prions. And be sure to check out that book. Young Kim, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thank you for having me. Like and nice to, to see you. I'm I'm a big fan of your uh, project. Yeah, thank you.
0: I appreciate that. It's it's especially gratifying to um, have COVID calls on Korea time, uh, right. where we're here together on the peninsula. Yes. <laughs> um, let me start out the way I generally do, just to find out um, where you're calling from and and how the pandemic situation looks there today. Right. I'm um, actually
1: I'm working at uh, POSTECH. It is Pohang University of Science and Technology in South Korea, which is located in uh, two and a half uh, hours away from the Seoul by train. Uh, the university is specialized for science and technology, in, and and um, it is quite um, relatively small university, but a quite strong research power compared to other other universities in in South Korea. And in, in Korea, many people heard the news that South Koreans managed that uh, pandemic relatively well without having the mandatory uh, lockdown like uh, most uh, Western countries, like uh, like uh, European countries and America. Uh, not having lockdown means uh, still uh, people have uh, economic activities and factories are producing goods. And uh, But uh, today it's uh, still a 595 confirmed case in Korea. And um, I'm always uh, interested in the British case for comparison. And uh, there are uh, today is uh, eight hundred sixty-eight confirmed case today. Uh, in Korean cases, in Korean case, is, it is a relatively rosy picture, but um, I'm not saying that it is a uh, Korean government's done really, really great job. Because uh, if there is a bright side, but um, also there is a negative and dark side, like uh, the problem of vulnerable people, and um, they have a great impact on uh, on disease without having proper social security measures like follow schemes or social supporting schemes. So that's why I'm interested in these issues.
0: Well, thank you for that introduction. There were so many um, things to follow up on, and I have to say, as a as a relative newcomer, having moved to South Korea only in February, I have so much to learn from you and other scholars who've been following about following this and writing uh, about it now ever since uh, last January. And I guess I want to go back, if you don't mind. I've been asking guests this question lately, and I alluded to it in my opening comments about memory. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing you know, one of your strongest memories or associations of how life has been different for you in this time, in this last 18 months?
1: Yeah, um, uh, the first time I realized that that seriousness of the disease was in early January in 2020, when I traveled to Britain. I stopped at Hong Kong airport, and where the security measure was so tight, and I thought there was something going on. And also fa- and also actually I had a uh, I had a four times quarantine because I have to uh travel between the Britain and uh, South Korea uh at that experience I had a, I, I realized that there there was huge uh, differences between two countries um although I had a kind of ambivalent feelings but um uh, when I when I when I was in Korea uh, during the quarantine, I feel secured and protected by the authority. But at the same time, the security measures were too much for me. So um, uh, that's why, because the, uh, for example, I I had I had uh, I had five times uh, I I I had a test for time uh, f- five times within 14 days, it is too much. Also from the airport in Seoul to uh, where I live in Pohang for quarantine, uh, police forces and the health workers always controlled my every inch of movements. So sometimes I feel that it's too much, but Mm. at the same time I feel secured. But on the other hand, when I entered the uh, airport in, in, in Britain, It is strange, strange feelings that um, nobody checked my status of quarantine and nobody called me for that uh, where I am or where I'm staying. And um, the so-called test and tracing system was not working properly at, at the time. So it is basically free movement. It is kind of a polarized experience. One is very tight, controlled a situation the other one is uh, so fairly relaxed situation so that's why um, what 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 is the problem with these two uh, societies so um that's why i'm uh, getting interested in that uh, this uh uh the case of the covid uh, covid 19 in in south korea and britain
0: such an interesting time period to focus on too I think January and February of 2020, and it really was not yet daily reality. At least it wasn't community spread well-known in North America or in Europe, although pretty good evidence it was there. Um, right. <clears throat> but the governmental responses were so different and so charged already by that point.
1: Exactly, yes. Yes. Yeah. So um, it's just too tight because I'm... Um, as soon as i arrived in the airport in in, in seoul and um, the police forces just restricted my movement and they just herding me to that uh, uh the, the station i have to wait and then I escort me to the uh, train station and um the train the special uh carriage for that uh overseas uh arrivals and they they brought me into that uh, pohang and then they the, the the health workers took me to uh to bring that to my home for quarantine and then of course uh, five times testing uh, experiences so um sometimes it, it is okay but um it is sometimes it is what they are going to do um and am and, um, i'm fine and uh and i'm Always negative, but um, they 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 always suspect me, suspected that I'm um, um, potential uh, uh, a confirmed case. So uh, that's why I have bit uh, ambivalent feelings. But in Britain, it's just also very strange. Um, nobody checked me. Why? And uh, that's why uh, I'm I'm getting interested in that comparative studies. What right. is the systemic differences between right. two countries?
0: Well, thanks for um, thanks for sharing those memories, and, and I wanna get to those differences in terms of COVID, but um, I was really eager to talk to you today also, just to um, maybe hear a little bit about your previous work. And right. You've been doing medical sociology before COVID, so let's talk a little bit about your previous work and maybe your book, your 2007 book, Social Construction of Disease, Talk to us a little bit about kind of the key issues there and, and some of the methods you used, uh, because I think there's some continuity across time from that work to yeah. where you are today, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, as an uh, STS researcher and also trained by that uh, so-called Edinburgh tradition, uh, my supervisor was uh, David Bloor and uh, Steve Sturdy, and um, I researched it on the how scientists constructed the idea of the prion disease at the time. Uh, the prion disease now it becomes uh, becomes a kind of the textbook cases, but um, at the time it was a, a bit of controversial entity. So um, since, nin- since, since the 1960s, many scientists con- conducted uh, laboratory uh, studies to uh, discover the nature of the mysterious disease in sheep and sheep cattle and humans. And um, in 1982, uh, Stanley Prusiner in in San Francisco, he proposed that uh, kind of revolutionary idea of the prion, and it causes big controversy in scientific community. And I interviewed uh, quite as many researchers as possible in Britain and America uh, to find out uh, how they basically figure out that uh, uh, the idea of the prion and some scientists, of course, supporting that idea, but uh, some uh, British, especially British scientists, uh, rejected the prion concept. And But um, in 1997, he won the Nobel Prize and um, the, the concept was settled down and accepted by the, the scientific community. So the whole process of the 20 or more years controversy shows that um, it is a kind of a, a textbook case of the social construction of that uh, how scientists constructed their idea in the laboratory works, and and and, and historically. So that's why I'm focusing on that uh, uh, prion disease. And after that, uh, when I returned to South Korea, I mainly focusing on the animal and human infectious disease, which interestingly in south korea at the beginning of the uh, since the beginning of the tw- uh, 21st century uh there was repeated uh, uh outbreaks of the, the human and animal infectious disease like uh, food and mouse and um, avian influenza and mers and sars so uh it is interesting how the uh, the korean society reacted to that uh, outbreaks and how korean government uh, basically uh, shaped their strategies and the uh, policies to cope with that uh, uh, the outbreaks and infectious disease that is uh, that is a uh, current uh, project but also uh, that's why uh, I'm 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 interested in that uh, case of the covid-19 because um covid-19 in south korea is quite a unique uh, a way of dealing so um that's why I'm getting interested in
0: just before we leave that earlier work that's so interesting and when you talk about social construction what at what point do you say that a disease is actually acknowledged i mean you know what when do you sort of move into a, into a sort of moment where you can actually say okay there's consensus about this and then it begins to shape health policy it begins to you know shape the health system i'm always curious about that cuz we, it's hard to put a date on it, I feel like, but it, there's clearly a before and after. So how do you know when that work is complete?
1: Right. Uh, it, it is because of the, the, the idea of the prion concept was suggested in 1982. Mm-hmm. And after that, for 15 years, scientists, basically scientists didn't know that what it is, the, what the nature of the infectious agent and um, it is basically guessing work, and uh, especially uh, the the prion scientists in San Francisco, they they conducted a lot of uh, uh, laboratory work to figure out uh, the, the nature of the infectious agent. On the other hand, the British some British scientists still stick to that. Uh, there could be the uh, informational molecule like a DNA in in, in the, in the uh, infectious agent. So there was two different idea collided at the time. So still uh, some some scientists still doesn't still don't believe that uh, the mm. prion idea. But um, uh, I think the turning point is around 1991 when uh, the the Stanley prisoners and his group conducted a very cutting edge uh, experiment. Of course, it is not, uh, they are full of uncertainty at the time. And they show that uh, quite uh, a convincing picture of uh the the, the the prion is quite different from that conventional uh, virus or, or microbes. My, uh, that's why it is a uh, the the concept of prion settle begin to settle down within the scientific community but uh when when scientists constructed that idea it is uh, it, it's interesting to see how they make a consensus amongst a scientist, because uh, uh when i conducted interviews and uh s- research uh, about 50 main uh, researchers around the world uh, who specialized in the prions or the transmissible, uh, it is called TSE. And um, it, some, the majority of scientists at the time didn't believe that prion concept. But a small minority of group of scientists at the time, they believe only believed that uh, the the concept of uh, a prion. So it is quite... A, Quite interesting to see that how mobilizing technologies and lab works to uh, convincing other scientists under the name of the prion. So um, that, that that is uh, that is uh, uh, my fundamental question: how they reaching that how they reach the consensus uh, in the scientific community to accept the concept now it is a textbook case everybody everybody believes that uh, uh, prion is there but um um I don't know it at, at that at, at that period it is quite interesting to see uh, every, everybody every scientist moving around and um, rejecting and accepting and um, showing that uh, uh, experimental evidence and counter evidence so um that that's why I I, I call that it is kind of a social construction of the disease Um, and also um, yeah so
0: So thank you for sharing that and I think um, I'm glad you spent some time describing it because it's been one of the things people have really remarked upon with COVID that um, and the pace is moving a little faster than the story you're telling us but still when scientists are deliberating in public and talking about uncertainty That can be a little alarming to people who often, if they're not aware about how, you know, epidemiology works or how infectious disease works, they think it's sort of cut and dried. And to see it sort of unfolding on their television screens every night or on social media, um, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a real that can be really disturbing to people, I think. And so that's kind of understanding Mm -hmm. that it usually Takes a lot longer than eighteen months, for example, um, right. is really important background. I want to turn to some discussion about what was going on in terms of infection control in South Korea, and and how the South Korean government and health officials arrived at the strategy that they that they did, which they arrived at pretty quickly, I think, in the pandemic. And and maybe if you could talk about that in the context of of some of the experience with some of these previous diseases, particularly. Um, you know, zoonotic diseases like foot and ha- foot and mouth disease, or avian influenza
1: mm-hmm. um, basically, uh, the South Korean uh, many people believe that the South Korean government reacts that outbreak and pandemic quite quickly and rapidly. and uh, the reaction of the governing body was has been appraised, but um sometimes uh, many people criticize that. Uh, what I'm focusing on, is uh, if Korean case has a unique uh, side compared to other countries' experience, the previous experience, I I, I can call it the disease experience, uh, shaped the local responses to the pandemic. So um, some uh, researchers claims that uh, outbreaks of SARS or uh, the outbreaks in of outbreaks of the MERS in two thousand fifteen played a quite important role in shaping that uh, uh, Korean strategies for uh, containing the disease. However, um, since since two thousand and eighteen, I am um, I I I am working uh, kind of some collaborative work with that uh, some researchers who are dealing with that uh, relationship between animal and humans, and um, I found that. That disease experience from uh, animal disease and human disease in South Korean context made a huge impact on shaping policies and strategies of containing the COVID. That's why I'm, um, I'm focusing on the uh, previous outbreaks of animal disease like, uh, like uh, uh, food and mouse in 2010 and avian flu in 2012 and uh, 2019, there was a big issue of that uh, African swine flu, uh, swine fever, uh, and, and MERS, of course, in 2015. Uh, The COVID-19 is that the disease in humans, but the ways of dealing and responding are coming from the previous disease experience in South Korean society. So uh, I can say that the main elements that shaped uh, the the policy explicitly or implicitly is are are probably four uh, elements the first one is a centralized response because the central government monopolized the whole process and second thing is uh, i don't know korean society has a has a quite a big influence by the military re- regime during the 1980s uh, so it's like a military like mobilization of the public doctors and the health workers in, in the case of the animal disease is they are they are the counterparts could be uh, veterinarians and um, civil servants and health workers as well. So they are, their roles are quite important. And thirdly, the strategy of the space centered and or, or, or ter- territorial defense is quite important. And also that in, in Korean case, you can find that uh, it is very aggressive and centralized labor intensive test and tracing regimes. The, of, of course, we we are using that uh, quite advanced uh, PCR test for, uh, for the population. And we have a quite good tracing applications and uh, CCTV. But behind that, uh, there, there there was a very aggressive uh uh labor intensive networks to manage their system so uh we cannot re- neglect that side so that's why we i, I tried to unfold how that labor intensive uh, uh networks can work to manage that di- that disease and um the basic idea of the managing that that networks and systems comes from that uh not 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 human disease, it's previous disease experience of uh, food and mouse and um, avian flu and uh, SARS and MERS. For, for instance, uh, during the outbreak of uh, food and mouse in 2010, there was a big debate of who have the right of the managing the antigenic and antibody tests uh, in the field. Uh, the local government claims that they need to uh, have a right to and demand, they demanded basically uh, the right of testing and sampling and collecting that the whole things, whole process by the local government. But um, the central government rejected it. There was a huge debate. And, and finally, uh, I think the central government successfully defends that uh, their, their right of the testing system, so that's why now now that the current system is still working by that uh, uh, central government and not uh, local uh, authorities, so that 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 kind of um, uh, relations or impact from that the previous uh, uh, disease experience have a uh, have a uh, big influence on current uh, regime of managing that uh, disease.
0: That's really interesting. And and just those four points are so useful to think with. One of the things I wonder if you could say a little bit more was how some of that infrastructure may actually stretch back to the military, to the times of the military. I mean, that might be surprising to people uh, to think about how that kind of institutional health infrastructure can span across time that way. Where do you see evidence of that? because because
1: um probably many people heard the news when uh the March of 2020 uh there was a big crisis in South Korea there was a huge uh infection cases in Daegu uh, and because um, because of that uh, one church members uh, they are gathered together and that uh, there was a big uh, transmissions happening and at the time uh it, it, is, it there was there was a there was a, huge, there was a potential widespread of the, the whole nation, but um, how to defend that crisis was basically mobilizing that uh, 1,500 public doctors, which is quite unique in Korean system. Every single uh, the medical school graduate need to uh, serve the military uh, service. Uh, instead of the conventional military service, they are basically located in the local uh, public health uh, hospitals. But at the time, the government decides uh, you don't need to train that uh, basic military military training. Instead of that, you need to go to Tegu to defend uh, the, the, the patients and they, they need to take care of the, the patients. And so one 1500 public doctors they played a really important role so how how mass mobilization of that uh, manpower was possible uh, on on the other on the other hand in european countries when when the pandemic begins and getting serious uh, for example a british medical society announced that retired uh, doctors and nurses coming back to uh, a front line to serve and take care of the patients uh tragic, it, it is it is basically f- sad stories because retired uh, doctors and uh, nurses of course they sacrificed their their their, their private life and um, uh went to that uh, front line but they, they're basically retired and um so many uh, uh the mortality cases, they they are infected by the, the patient and they died, so it it was not su- successful. That uh, so, the the concept of the public doctor who can mobilize by that uh, central government plays really important role, and where that system come from, uh, I would say it is long history of that uh, military service in South Korea. Mm-hmm. It is a mandatory military service. So that's why it is, they 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 mobilized one thousand five hundred uh, public doctors pour into that uh, the city of Daegu at, to defend the, the situation. So that's why they they, they successfully defend that uh, the the okay. situation and uh, settle down. So that's why uh, that, that is one example of that uh, how kind of militarized the system of in, in South Korea can play the role. Uh, in in defending that uh, disease, yeah,
0: that's that's a fascinating continuity uh, in the Western media. Um, I think the most commonly repeated idea was that I saw was that it was the recent experience in South Korea with MERS, right? That, yeah, and that that's the answer. We look mm-hmm. to the you know the Western media was constantly fascinated with the success of the South Korean case, mm-hmm. and um, and sometimes that fascination. And I've talked recently about this um, with previous guests, Jaewon Hyun uh, and Sub Choi, about the problem of how the Western media sometimes refer to sort of an Asian response. And, yeah, exactly, and, yes. and that's a dangerous road to go down because it becomes this sort of um, coded uh, racism pretty quickly. And, and that's a problem. But I think journalists in good faith who were looking for things to learn from what was going on in South Korea were fascinated with, what was learned by the government that they characterize as a sort of a memory, muscle memory, that served the country well? Do you agree with that assessment that MERS played an important role? In some sense,
1: yes and no. It, it, yes, because of that the, the experience of the MERS in 2015 uh, has a big impact on that uh, shaping that uh, whole government governing the system of the disease in, in South Korea but we need to focusing on how that uh, how the institution shaped and constructed during that period because uh, it, the south korea the public health system in south korea was relatively uh short history and a pretty immature uh, compared to the european countries for example in britain britain has uh, one of the first place of building that uh, public health system for managing infectious disease. For example, cholera outbreaks in 1835 and the Public Health Act in 1875 uh, was the big uh, turning point of the history of the public health policy. But since then, uh, the British institution has a long and rigid uh, tradition to deal with infectious disease. Uh, for example, the NHS played a significant role but on the other hand, the South Korean case is quite different. It has a; it doesn't have a long history. Even um, uh, uh, before SARS outbreak, we didn't have a proper uh, uh, gov- government agency for dealing with uh, that infectious infectious disease. Only we had uh, National Health Institute during the nineteen eighties, and in nineteen ninety nine the Agency for Managing Infectious Disease was established. And then in 2004, Korean Agency for Disease Control and Prevention, Korean CDC was established, but the ranking was so low in the, in the government. And uh, that's why after outbreak of MERS in 2015, Korean CDC became the, uh, the same level as Deputy Health Minister men, Ministry, and then uh, last year, at last, it became a proper independent agency. Why I mentioned that uh, this uh, historical process, because a Korean society has a kind, kind of, uh, regarding that the public health system, it has short and volatile history of institutionalizing that uh, governing uh, infectious disease. That means we still, the system still have uh, flexible and changeable and applicable to uh, quite different strategies for the different situations and conditions. Uh, for Of course, there are a lot of weaknesses, like uh, the agency is not so powerful and the power of, power of implementing a policy is limited uh, so far. But my point is the rigidity and sturdiness of the in- institution is quite important because uh, the the a British case is quite good example because they have a long history they have a quite uh, a rigid and strong tradition of the uh, public health system but at uh, this time the NHS is the kind of obstacle because they always saying that uh, protecting that uh, protecting the NHS and save saved lives that is a motor of the, the British Handling of the pandemic, uh, so why that public health system, which is rigid and sturdy, sturdy, uh, cannot cope with that uh, novel, novel, infectious, novel infectious disease like uh, COVID nineteen, uh, because it needs sometimes it needs uh, fundamentally a new imaginations to cope with. That means we need a flexible, and fluidal uh, reactions to that to different conditions. So that's why it is kind of paradoxical uh, situations mm-hmm. Kore- Korean cases have a quite short and immature immature uh, uh, institutions but um, that's why they, they they only can cope with it because they don't have a, a strong uh, uh, traditions. So uh, it is a quite flexible uh, a way of dealing that disease and also uh the rigidity and the sturdiness of the, the tradition in britain has a they always stick to that one orth- orthodoxy that is a flu because whole mm. models and strategies based on the flu model not covid-19 so that is a that is a fundamental uh, problem uh, the only in in the early stages of the pandemic i I think so um that's why i'm I'm focusing on that uh, uh, we need to focusing on the d- disease experience uh, the previous disease experience in the animals and humans so um so in in, in Korean society is it's quite interesting uh we, when we when we cope with that uh, so-called exotic infectious disease called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Who on earth can imagine that uh, mysterious disease comes from that uh, in, in Mid- Middle East ca- uh, can arrive in far eastern corner of Asia? So um, it is totally new. And um, if we have a quite rigid system, probably they failed to cope with that. Mm. but. Um, Uh, Fortunately, unfortunately, we have a quite uh, uh, flexible Hmm. and immature system. So that's why we can probably that's why we can cope with that uh, disease uh, relatively successfully. Yeah.
0: It's such a helpful explanation and particularly illuminating when you put it in, in comparative uh, relief like that. I just want to remind guests you're listening to COVID Calls, the 300th episode of COVID Calls, as a matter of fact. And I'm talking with my guest, Ki-Hung Kim, professor at Post here in South Korea. And um, I want to turn, I'm going to go a little further with this comparative work you've been doing between Britain and South Korea. And you have a recent article that was published. Um, I'm just going to read a, a couple lines from it because I think it's really um, interesting for us to discuss you say the so you're talking here about prediction models and you just mentioned a minute ago the flu model as a sort of determinative model in in the uk you write the utility of a disease spread prediction model based on a mathematical model has already gained technical trust in the spread of mad cow disease in the 1990s and foot and mouth disease in 2001 you're talking about this in in the uk and has been used as a basic resource for quarantine policies Mm-hmm. In the process of preparing the quarantine policy against the spread of COVID-19 in 2020, you write, the mathematical model presented by the, an Imperial College research team played a decisive role in determining the nationwide containment policy. So talk to us about this mathematical model issue and, and where you see in it some room for critique. Right. Yeah. Um,
1: uh, the reason why uh, focusing on that, uh, the mathematical model is... Um, in 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 korean uh, in korean strategy and policy there was it, it it's really hard to find that uh, mathematical model or the prediction model in, in 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 public public domain and also it is really hard to find that uh, the uh, the expert in the, in that area but on the other hand in british case uh especially during the early stage of pandemic, uh, I mean, in March 20, 2020, uh, the British Health Authority carefully uh, showing that their plan uh, of containing the disease, which can be called, they called it coronavirus battle plan. Uh, it is a 4, four, four staged, uh, uh plan. Uh, the first one is contain, delay, research, mitigation. This plan looks so well planned, and um, frankly speaking, it is really great. The main purpose of this plan was at the time was flattening the curve. That was buzzwords at the time. Everybody's talking about the the flattening the curve. Probably you can can remember that. And however, there is a fundamental weakness of this plan. I, I found that the plan was based on so called flu model which is mathematical model developed by that uh, some group of scientists they, they they have quite long tradition since the medical disease and food and mouse and successfully uh, established that uh, mathematical models and they successfully predict that uh, transmission patterns in in britain uh, they they hope the basic assumption was it is all about flu, not uh, mysterious disease in, or, or some other diseases. And also, uh, in the case of the Ebola and Zika virus uh, spread out in, in in some part of area in, in Latin Latin America and Africa, uh, it, that the disease failed to reach in that uh, British Islands, and. Around two thousand and nine, the British government uh, changed the basic strategy. From the uh, they they basically uh, make a plan, made a plan uh, on the basis of the worst case scenario in before the two thousand and nine. And after that, they changed the tactics called reasonable worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. What is a reasonable? reasonable means uh, probably they it, it is an outcome of the complacency in in their disease experience because uh, Zika or Ebola virus failed to reach, reach that uh, British island and only seasonal flu come and goes in the British society. So their, their plan was basically based on that uh, flu model. So that flu model is always a basic idea for making a mathematical model, and it was quite played an important role in shaping the policy in the, in the early stage of the pandemic. But when they talking about flattening the curve, of course, when you talk about flu, the flu, flu virus is gradually dying out as the weather improves because of the weather is getting warmer the virus is dying out it's uh, the transmission is slowing down they basically have an idea of the virus is get, going going to dying out uh, in in the spring and late in summer but the flu is not uh covid-19 and covid-19 right. is not flu so when they set up the uh, mathematical models uh i think it is a uh, I think it is a wrong assumption. So that's why, uh, when when Bill Gates talking about this pandemic, it's a once in a century pandemic. Uh, the the John Ioannidis of Stanford University he called it, it is a once in a century data fiasco. Why he called it data fiasco is uh, data is not come from the uh, COVID nineteen. It's just data comes from basically a flu. So I uh, uh, so that's why I'm focusing on that. Uh, why why they failed to predict at the time in the in the early stages of the uh, uh, pandemic, and <clears throat> in the case of the South Korean uh, experience, the picture is totally different. As you me- as as I mentioned that we don't have a uh, mathematical prediction models in the area of the public health policy, and rather it is basically patchwork model because um, uh, I don't want to say it is critically, but um, uh, some experts always claiming that Koreans are quite lucky in some sense, because it, for example, in 17th of December, 2009, 2019, a small group of people in C- Korean CDC had an exercise with a situation that a mysterious coronavirus patient arrives in in Korean airport. This unknown coronavirus need to detect it by the, the quick test methods at the time. So that's why the, the conclusion of the task force was a development of Pan coronavirus test kit, so that's why they begin to uh, develop the test test uh, test kit and test a uh, process by using the, the PCR in early uh, January and uh, February two thousand and twenty. So <clears throat> some can say that of course that is a, a well planned and preparedness uh, uh, situation in South Korea, but um, uh, some people say it is pure luck. So. How can we uh, interpret this situation? Mm. So, um, one side in British case have a long history, rigid and um, well-planned plan, well-carefully established plan, but which is based on wrong assumption. In Korean cases, I don't know, it is a pure luck or basically I can call it patchwork. You, you can cope with case by case and um, uh, different conditions and situations. So that that's why I'm focusing on that uh, institutions mm. of fluidity
0: and flexibility. That is very important for me. Yeah. Just want to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and um, just, you know, that really that importance of that flu model. I mean, I think it, it really got stuck in the mind of a lot of non-scientists too. Um, And I even remember, you know, in the spring of 2020, Donald Trump at that time talking about, um, it's just going to, the coronavirus will just go away. It will pass away. Exactly. And, and, And he was, and some of that is just Trump talking, but I think some of that was also, he was pulling from some of the same, you know, de- narrative data that was using flu as a model mm-hmm. and saying, "Yeah, as it warms up and people go outside, it won't spread as fast and it'll die out, and that's that." And, and right, so he yeah. had that kind of lodged in his mind, I think. But that's not what they were dealing with.
1: Yeah, I think I think that that was a common sense amongst the scientists at the time. But um, I, I found that the, the mathematical prediction model was um, uh, mismatched with that uh, the the reality. The reality of the, the corona uh, uh, the covid-19 situation. So um that's why it is
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, there th- there was huge differences between the flu model and uh, covid-19. So
0: I, I know um Professor Kim there were some slides that maybe you wanted to show. Is that still relevant no, no, that's in Do <laughs> yeah. so you want to move on from that or do you want to yeah. show them? That's fine. Okay. Um, let's just um, if you don't mind have a couple more questions. We're almost up on On time, but I did want to get a couple of other things um, into the discussion here. And I would like to talk about vaccination um, a little bit, if you don't mind. It's been, again, such a disjuncture when we compare the uh, South Korean case to, let's say, the North American case, particularly the United States case, where infection control in the United States was just a nightmare. I mean, even places that did it well don't even begin to approach the success um, of what was accomplished here in South Korea. And on the other hand, the United States, maybe predictably, government put so much emphasis on the rush to the vaccine, um, you know, manufacture and rollout, that by the time of early spring of this year, there was vaccine, well, certainly by mid-spring, there was vaccine on demand in the United States in Mm -hmm. many, many communities, and still in Korea, the process is is rolling out. So I'm curious so to, uh, how you think about the vaccine and vaccination process in South Korea and, and how you think it compares to other countries.
1: I, th- I think a- a- every successful stories of the implementing uh, the policy uh, has kind of a hidden side of the complicates, uh, complic- uh, uh, Compl- Complicity. We that that is um, during the summer of two thousand and twenty, uh, Koreans managed and contained coronavirus quite well. But um, on the other hand, many Western um, at at the time the Western media praised that the Korean model. But the problem is that uh, uh, the failed countries like uh, Britain and uh, America have no options but. Uh, developing then deploying the uh, vaccines to achieve the mass immunity uh, the uh, Korean at the time korean authorities seems to me uh that uh, lose the momentum of uh, secure the vaccines uh at the time that was developed developing in some uh, major pharmaceutical companies and that that's why it is a, that the whole process was slightly slowing down and also uh i'm I'm very interested in the two concepts. One is uh, eradication and uh, mitigation. Uh, Why I'm focusing on these two uh, two different concepts is uh, when Korean government uh, uh, implemented the centralized and aggressive containing policy uh, is based on eradication policy. Uh, which is which comes from that uh, experience, the previous experience of animal infectious disease. The main purpose of the the space and territorial centered strategy is isolation and suppression of the, the transmission, and the final aim would be eradicating that the disease. The main assumption of this uh, this strategy is not uh, basically living with the virus. Uh, but eradic- eradicating that, the virus. When we at the, at at this time, currently, when we focusing on that uh, rolling out the vaccinations, the fundamental idea is, uh, basically, living with that, the virus, not eradicating the virus. But last eighteen months, we 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 heavily focusing on that uh, eradicating the virus and suppress of the infectious agent the the korea still korean korean authorities uh, stick to that uh, to implement the test trace and test treatment approach so um that is based on that uh, re- a suppressing model of the uh, virus so uh i'm i'm very interesting i'm interested in when we change that, the whole idea of the virus virus should be suppressed and virus should be uh, eradicated then we need to change the idea we need to live with that, the virus by the m- mass vaccination so I, i'm i'm now i'm watching and observing how the the Public discourse has been changed because, um, everybody at the, the last eighteen months we talking about uh, suppressing and isolating and mm-hmm. uh, eradicating the disease. But now, when we have a uh, um, mass vaccinations, uh, we we begin to talk about uh, living with a vacciner- va- vaccination and uh, the COVID nineteen would be another seasonal flu so probably regularly we need to another jab next year or something like that so i'm i'm very interested in how the government persuade the public from Mm. the suppressing the virus to living with the virus so i that is there is a big difference and big transformation so um that 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 is a this time is that uh, in the middle of the process, beginning to uh, raise that uh, discourse of living with a, vex- a virus. And um, we need to uh, put the be- behind that behind the concept of the suppressing and the eradication of the virus. So um, that could be a quite interesting topic for that uh, next, probably, uh, next year for for to to observe and uh, analyzing how public discourse and uh, government uh, strategies will transformed. So uh,
0: that's really, it's really interesting. And, you know, coming from, you know, the United States experience, I can say because the suppression never worked, that there's not much of a holdover for that. And, And I think even people who've been very cautious and people who remain very cautious and still wear masks, the great greater part of society in the United States has has moved if their people are vaccinated they get through a period of time in which they're uncertain and then the masks mm-hmm. come off and they're going back to work and they're you know they're reintegrating into into a society in which they're you know the idea is it's back to the way things were before 2020 but you're describing something quite different here in South Korea and I wonder how public health officials will make that argument and so I wonder even if the two concepts might just coexist that you would continue to have a sort of a suppression philosophy while also having this kind of seasonal, you know, or what you might call it a a vaccination philosophy. Maybe the two Mm -hmm. will have to, it's going to be hard for people after 18 months or in some cases, two years to transition out of this suppression mindset. Don't you think? I think, I think so because, um, uh, so far, we all
1: we always always listening to that uh, what people saying about yeah so, uh, sooner uh, it, within a short period we can manage that uh, eradicating that disease and uh, we can back to normal without wearing masks and um, without having that uh, vaccinations. But the problem is uh, now uh, gradually people are talking about yeah next year we need another booster job jabs, and for and and um if we need to regular uh vaccines for that uh for the future so i i think that the uh, governing bub- uh, gov- government need to persuade the public uh the basic idea of the basic concept of disease because um the disease itself is as Langdon Winner says, the, the virus itself is just catalyst. The disease itself is society. The mm. disease, the, the COVID-19 is a social disease. So the, the, the infectious agent is always transformed in different uh, situations and in different conditions. And also the technology, uh, wearing masks and uh, testing regimes, and PCR test, they all are quite. Uh, I can say it is it is kind of um, uh, a boundary object because mm-hmm. I'm coming from the test. Yes, a tradition. So um, when we talking about uh, when, when, when we are talking about uh, the technology, uh, the technology like like wearing masks and uh, PCR test always transformed in different space different yeah. space and different conditions so um uh, i th- i think that the wearing masks and social distancing is would be kind of another new normal and um uh, probably the 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 focal point we need to uh, carefully observed is um is how how the uh, whole society have uh, shaped the consensus yeah. of what is virus, and what is the disease?
0: So um, yeah, you're giving you so much to think about. I'm glad you, I'm glad you mentioned Langdon Winter. Um, and for listeners who are not familiar with Langdon Winter, he's a great STS scholar who's written you know a number of different works about you know nuclear risk and and yeah. philosophy of technology. And yeah. the end, he has a great piece called "Do Artifacts have Politics?" And I, as you were mentioning Langdon Winter, um, you, you know, I'm thinking about the artifacts of COVID. Um, the technological artifacts, the masks, and even the artifacts of social distancing, which are ubiquitous here in South Korea. Uh, anywhere where somebody could line up, there's there's markings on the ground telling you where you should stand. And so I think those things are going to be, well, I don't know, it's just speculation, but what will it mean to dismantle that sort of technological regime of suppression, Mm-hmm. That, that that will be a form of politics, and I'm not sure how comfortable it will be for some people to dismantle it
1: So, uh, so probably that that, that they, they all prob- The social social discourse would be uh, quite uh, quite different from that to what uh, experts said but um, the the Next we, we need we need to watch carefully because uh, because um when we, talk, when we talk about uh, the, the technology, for example, PCL test in South Korea, which is quite successfully deployed and uh, implementing. And behind that, we need to see how it is, uh, it, it, it needs, it requires uh, wider networks of the labor intensive powers, uh, lab workers, and um, PCL facilities, and um, all public health workers, it, it is it is quite it is quite big network to support that uh, called uh, PCL test. But in in South Korea, uh, luckily we have we have quite a good network of uh, mobilizing that uh, PCL test, and um, the centralized government managed that, that the whole. Uh, test regime quite well. On the other hand, uh, in British case was uh, a very example of the they failed to manage the uh, test regimes because I guess it is, it, is, uh, it is the kind of outcome of the PPP called the public and private partnership, mm-hmm. which comes from new labor in during the 1990s and conservative governments. Because they they need to uh, invest, and um, they are locating test test regimes and managing systems. On the one hand, in the public public health bodies like NHS, and the, on the other hand, is private companies. But the problem is there was there is a fundamental fundamental mismatches between the two uh, systems. That's why it it, it fails. So um, now, now probably next year, that uh, British British uh, uh, Parliament launching that uh, public uh, public uh, listening pub, uh, public committees for for what happened uh, last mm-hmm. two, two years. So um, we can we can find that uh, something quite interesting stories about uh, how they managing that uh, PPP systems in in the area of the uh, testing and tracing regimes. And um, we we can compare that uh, the, the British system and Korean systems, and um, what Koreans did and actually is doing is based on b- very centralized, aggressive, military-like uh, yeah. mobilization of systems. So, so uh, it could be quite interesting for for me, like as ah. uh, their researchers.
0: I was going to say, talking with you today, I can already, I can see sort of sketched out in your mind the articles to come. It's really fascinating (laughs) to hear you talk about them kind of one by one. I've been very greedy with your time and we should conclude, but I did want to get one sort of little quick final question, which is uh, as fascinating, it's probably more fascinating to North American listeners than it is to South Korean listeners. But what's your sense of, I mean, I was going to ask you the question, what's the sense of, of what's happening in North Korea with COVID? But not because I expect you to know the answer to that, but even just how do you think about that question? Because I think you know, there's been a lot of, of concern about what's happening in authoritarian regimes around the world with COVID. And you know, naturally, that's going to be a, a concern with North Korea. I wonder how, if that's even an interesting question to you or other um, South Korean STS scholars at all.
1: Um, of course, it, it is really, really hard to answer. But um, uh, the relationship between the North Korea and South Korea is always relying on uh, international politics. And also COVID situation in North Korea, also political issue, not public health issues. Um, so when, when the relations between the North and South Korean uh, societies improves, then probably... Uh, there could, there could be a, a, a lot of things to support a North Korean uh, counterpart, providing testing systems or, and um, vaccines. However, the situation, we, we, we need to remind that, uh, bear in mind, the North Korean situation is fundamentally different from the South. The regime is different and conditions of nu- nutrition of the population in North Korea is uh, basically different and the public public health system is quite different from uh, South Korea. So I don't think we can apply the same logic to that uh, North Korean context. And um, uh, in, in South Korea, there, there has been long debate how to see the North, Cor- North Korean society in politics and socio- sociology. One thing is very, very clear. All the North and South Korea has the same roots and uh, we have, we are close neighbor, the contextual conditions are totally different from what South Korean society. So um, uh, what we have to do from now on is um, we need to closely monitor and uh, research on that uh, the situation in North Korea. And we need to develop an alternative way of, improving po- public policy and uh, kind of supporting systems we need to prepare for that uh, uh, North Korean society when they need uh, kind of um, uh, support from the outside of North Korea. Uh, so far, the North Korean regime is, they, they close that whole uh, communications with uh, outside of North Korea. So um, I don't think it, it I don't think it is, it is uh, uh, wise to uh, apply the same logic uh, to North Korean, North Korean conditions. Uh, so that's why uh, we need to, we need to bear in mind it's totally different situations in North and South Korea. So, uh, but uh, we need to prepare for that uh, the time for supporting or collaborating with uh, North Korean counterparts.
0: I want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, today, a special COVID Calls, uh, marking the 300th episode of COVID Calls with my guest ki Hyung Kim, uh, at which took place at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. And you can catch uh, COVID Calls next on Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time when I'll be talking with Stuart Landers and with a special co-host, Eleanor Mays. We'll be talking about LGBTQ communities and COVID nineteen in the United States. So please do join me for that. And I just want to thank my guest ki and Kim for talking about your fascinating trajectory of research and all of the work you've been doing on COVID nineteen. Learned a lot in the discussion. Thank you so much, Professor. Thank you for inv- invitation. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone, and we will see you on Wednesday, five thirty p.m. Eastern Time.